Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, is where I'd ask you to turn this morning. In just a minute, we're going to begin reading in verse 30. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. All right. They, and that would be Jesus and the twelve, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Amen. I thought it was interesting yesterday in the mail, in light of this topic about who's the greatest, I received the, the Time magazine the 100 most influential people in the world. So 100 of the greatest. If you're interested, you can, you can read all about it. All right, let's pray. Father, we are very glad of the privilege of singing your praise. And now we are expectant as we take up our Bibles to learn from your word. So that in these precious moments that you have given to us, we will hear your voice. This is the end to which we pray and this is our heartfelt expectation that far beyond the voice of a mere man, we may know ourselves under the sound of your truth, supported by your Holy Spirit, learning your scriptures, your way. For Jesus' sake, we ask this. Amen. Well, Bill Hybel, in many Christian circles, is a very popular speaker and author who has written a number of books which have sold in the millions too Busy Not to Pray is one of those books that comes to mind. However, one book that he wrote, which sold the fewest number of copies, indeed the sales were embarrassingly low for an author of his notoriety, was the book Descending into Greatness. And the pressure of the book reads like this, in a society where upward mobility and ease of life is the highest goal, here's a tough question. Do Christians place God's desires first or their own desires. And apparently no one really wanted to answer the question because so few books were purchased. Still, the presser continues, like Christ, the Christian must descend into self-abandonment, unconditional giving, unconditional sacrifice, and even to death itself. And like Christ, we will then ascend into fulfillment, blessing, joy, and meaning. So even that little encouragement at the end, you know, you'll get it all back in spades now could not get many people to buy the book. And I think that's important for us today because in the verses before us, the disciples are going to be taught by Jesus of this this descent, of this downward mobility in becoming a servant to others is God's way to greatness. 
It's one of the principles of God's kingdom. You can't escape it. To go down for Christ is actually go up. And if you would, to know greatness, as Jesus explains here, you must be last and a servant of all, which in many ways, as you think about it, is a continuation of the lesson we learned last time in Mark's gospel, which was something the disciples couldn't do. We need to know ourselves as weak in faith if we're actually going to be strong. That our admitted weakness is the key to a strong, Christ-exalting act of faith. So the father said to Jesus, the father of the sick boy said to Jesus, I believe, remember, but help my unbelief. Jesus, this is where I'm at. This is all I have. Can you please help me with the rest? And Jesus does. The disciples, on the other hand, failed to do the simplest, but admittedly one of the hardest things in the world to do, which was to admit their weakness and the healing of this boy and simply call out to God for his mercy and help. If you like, guys, you just need to humble yourselves and be honest and pray and let God and not you have the last word on this matter, which as you think about it, that's the life of faith. The life of faith is simply trusting God's word over our own. The disciples did not believe they were that weak, so they could not see the need to cry out to God for mercy. And the boy did not get helped. And even after that lesson, you'll see this if your Bible is open, verse 34, they still can't understand their weakness and want to, verse 34, talk about their greatness. Incredible. Now, as you think about this, I'm going to suggest to you that this morning calls for an honesty that I hope that we're all prepared to give. Because if we do not truly know our hearts, how devilish they can be, we would be shocked with the argument the disciples were having about who among them were the greatest, especially after Jesus just spoke about his death. I mean, that would be like a family arguing about who's going to get what of grandma's stuff, either by grandma's deathbed or by her open casket. That shouldn't happen, but we know by lip or by thought it has happened. So we mustn't be shocked. We need to be honest. We have often made comparisons of ourselves with others in order to come out either greater than them or as the greatest. So we need God's grace. Self-reliance and self-exaltation, which was taking place here in the disciples, are really one and the same. And they have no spiritual power. And they do not please God. Therefore, this morning, one of the lessons we will learn by God's grace is by nature, we can easily live a life which is not a cruciformed-shaped life, not a Christ-centered, exalting life, but rather a protective of the self-life, a self-life, which simply uses Jesus to fulfill one's ambitions, which is what the disciples were clearly doing here, discussing among themselves of who is the greatest, and to secure those positions in God's kingdom, and giving their personal arguments on why it should be them. In fact, if you just turn the page in chapter 10, James and John are just going to go eye to eye with Jesus and say, Jesus, give us the top spots in your kingdom. We want that. We are your greatest. So I want you to see that this kind of self-advancing, self-protective, exalting life makes it very hard to descend into the greatness Jesus describes here in these verses. In fact, it's, it's so hard That humanly speaking, it is impossible to do. And we need Christ 
in his gospel to achieve this for us. We needed Christ to die so that we may live the way he describes here and be forgiven when we don't. Because we don't always do this. Which, interestingly enough, is one of the critiques of Hibble's book. Because it was said the need for God's grace was replaced by the need for Christians to just get serious and try even harder. We've all heard those kind of sermons. But we'll let the reader decide on that. All right, number one, a question they would not ask. If your Bible's open, verse 30, you'll see it there. And you should have this picture in your mind. You have Jesus and the disciples making their way to Jerusalem. Having just passed through Galilee, about to, verse 33, enter Capernaum. And as they make their journey, they make it under the looming shadow of the cross. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem to die. The disciples don't fully understand this, but Jesus does. Therefore, on this journey, Jesus desires privacy. Verse 30, Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were. And the reason why he desires privacy is because he's going to teach them theology. This is theology of the cross. And the verb form there to teach in verse 31 means Jesus is going to continually teach this lesson all along their journey. So every step by step by step, all along, he's going to be teaching the twelve. So what is he going to be teaching them? Well, apparently Jesus took his notes from chapter 8, the first time he told them about his suffering and death and resurrection, and he combines it now with chapter 9, which is the second time Jesus teaches them. You see it there, verse 31, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, okay, that's new, into the hands of men, they will kill him, and after three days he will rise. That was the basis of his lesson. And you'll notice that when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. It's there purposely. It's not just some kind of random title that Jesus chose. And the reason why it's there purposely is because the Old Testament always anticipated the arrival of the Son of Man. For example, Daniel chapter 7. Just listen to what Daniel writes. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And that was kind of like Old Testament 101 for God's people. That was basic Old Testament studies. And so when they would read that account, the question that they had was, I wonder who that son of man's going to be. And I wonder when he come, will he come or when will he come? And when he comes, isn't it going to be great? It's the same way they would ask themselves, who will be this final king who sits on David's throne? Or who will be the priest who finally makes a sufficient sacrifice for sin? So when Jesus uses that phrase, son of man, it's describing his majesty and glory, having all authority and the kingdom of God that will never end. And as a result, now listen carefully, the disciples knowing all that are having a terrible time reconciling that truth to what Jesus is now teaching them of his betrayal, his suffering, and his death. So it doesn't make sense to them at that point of the story. It will in the future, but again, it will take God's grace to achieve that understanding for them. However, now they're stuck. They're not sure how the power and the glory of Daniel chapter 7, that son of man, was now being combined by Jesus by the suffering and sacrifice of, say, for example, like Isaiah 53, another basic text, another messianic text. But they weren't thinking about that text here. 
Which is why I've told you since we've been together, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. The cross before the crown. The suffering here before the glory there. That's the tension of the Christian life. That's the tension of actually following Christ. And it's the tension here in this particular verse. And you see, tragically, the disciples, after being taught all about this, they're unwilling to ask Jesus any questions at all. Verse 32, but they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. So on one level, you would have hoped, right? They've been together for a while, and it's Jesus, right? You'd have hoped they would have said something like, Jesus, you say you've been betrayed. And by the way, that's the tense of the verb. Jesus doesn't say, I, I'm going to be. It's actually, I've been betrayed. So you said you've been, you're gonna, you've been betrayed and you will die. And we're afraid. We feel powerless. We don't want you to go to Jerusalem to die. We love you, Jesus. And losing you would be unbearable. Please explain this to us. You would have hoped for that. But sadly, they're not thinking that at all. And we know that from verse 34, which we find in verse 44. They're not thinking about Christ's suffering They're only arguing about their greatness. So maybe, maybe they are beginning to put all what Jesus is saying together. And they're thinking that the death of their master may very well result, may even require the death of his disciples. Maybe they were saying to themselves, he did say we had to carry a cross. He did say if we would follow him, we'd have to lose our life. And now he's talking about death and rising. So I'm not sure, but this scares me. Now, as you think about that, maybe that's you here today. You're unfamiliar with these kinds of words that Jesus has spoken. You, you never actually internalize them. You're always like, Jesus is there for me. Jesus is going to be nice to me. He's going to protect me. He's going to help me keep my life, keep my plans, and keep my stuff. And now here comes Jesus with all this self-denial, lose your life, and be a slave to others. And we don't want to entirely know what it means Kind of just keep it out there. So we won't internalize it. And we won't internalize it, then we won't ask those questions. We'll just put it out of our mind. We'll say, well, that's just Joe. The disciples want to put it out of their minds. However, verse 32 is very clear. They understood enough to be afraid of understanding more. That's what's happening here. They understand enough to be afraid of understanding more. And their fear, they won't take that next step, and they won't ask for the full meaning. So think of it this way. Let's say you're told by your doctor that you have to get that biannual scan and blood work to see if your cancers return. And you don't want to, because you're afraid it will be bad news, so you don't go. But if you don't go, you won't know. And if you don't know, and it's bad news, well, how can you be helped? That's the disciples. They understood enough to be afraid of understanding more. And they're starting to realize that this following Jesus business is actually serious business. Jesus removes all the artificial understandings of what it means and what it will cost to follow him. And he stays right on the line of the direct will of God. Now listen carefully. You see what Jesus is doing here, and he's going to do. He's not lowering the standard. He's just magnifying his grace. Right? He's not lowering the standard. This is the will of God. But he just magnifies his grace. Which means following Jesus Christ is so countercultural, counterintuitive, 
that our best moments, that our best moments are not in the sun, in the fun, in the beach, in the cabin, in the retreat. They're great, but they're not the best moments. That our best moments on earth are moments of profound suffering and profound service and losing our life each for the sake of the gospel. And we will never truly believe that until we've been changed by God's grace. And so the disciples at this point understood enough to be afraid of understanding more. And here I am again. I want to say to myself, I wish they would have said, Jesus, Jesus, I can't do this. I don't understand this. Will you help me? Will you have mercy on me? And he would have. He would have said something like, boys, let me explain. Listen, I'm going to the cross to die for your inability to follow me so that in me, in me, I will follow me for you, right? I will follow me for you. That's the doctrine of substitution and justification. I'll credit you my obedience, guys, and then you'll follow me, not perfectly, but it will always be savingly. That's the doctrine of sanctification. I'll give you my power because of my grace. That's the gospel. However, now listen carefully, just like they refused to call out to God in prayer to help that little boy, They refused to ask Jesus the question that they needed in order to understand the cross. That's number one, a question they wouldn't ask. Number two, a question they would not answer. Verse 33, they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Now, what is that? Well, that is anti-gospel behavior. That's anti-gospel behavior because they were arguing on the basis of their works. That is terrible. That is terrible. So, Jesus had just been talking with them, that little walking seminar. And he's talking about his death and resurrection. And now the twelve are in a house, maybe the house of Peter and Andrew. That's based on chapter 1, verse 29 of Mark. But regardless, in the house... Jesus asked them that question, verse 33. What were you arguing about on the road? So what I want you to see there is that the disciples were not discussing something. They weren't conferring over something, but they were arguing over something. And the word here, listen to this. This is almost comical. This is what the word implies. One confused mind interacting with other confused minds each further reinforcing the original confusion. Hence the heated discussion, right? Because usually you're hot when you don't know what you're talking about. Equally, the verb there for, the, for arguing is in the imperfect, and for Jesus asking is also in the imperfect, which means Jesus kept asking the question, what are you arguing about? And the guys kept remaining silent. So can you picture that in your mind? <laughs> It's almost like at home. I just had to say that. But anyway, Jesus, guys, <laughs> Joe, Jesus, interchangeable. Anyway, no. Guys, when I was teaching you on the road about my passion, you kept arguing about something. What were you arguing about? No answer. Silent, right? Guys, on the road, what were you arguing about? Come on, tell me. Not a word. Not a word. And that happens again and again. After I told you about my passion, what are you arguing about? But, verse 34, they kept quiet. Do you ever watch those kind of, I don't know, I guess they're on YouTube and all those other places where they have the video of a little kid and he's covered in chocolate and there's a big pile of chocolate opened up and the mom or dad says, 
did you eat that chocolate? And the kid's just like, and again, did you eat that chocolate? You know, the kid's like, and then after the fourth time, the, maybe the child starts going, you know, like that. Do you think the disciples would have been embarrassed? I mean, you, at least you hope they would have. They're in the company of the one who made, who made and owns everything in the world. The one who has treated them perfectly. They didn't want to have to tell him, well, when you were teaching us about your death, we were arguing about who among us is the best, the greatest. So their silence is wrapped up around the fact that the disciples on the road were anticipating some kind of unholy power grab, and that was coming as they made their way to Jerusalem. So what they're determined to do is create like a pecking order, a hierarchy of greatness to make their case of their greatness and get the best positions in the kingdom. So, so maybe on the road it was, well, you know what? I was part of the original three who was personally requested by Jesus to go to the mountain of transfiguration. And you were one of the nine who couldn't even heal that boy. Oh, man, you guys are losers, right? That's on the road. But on the house, they covered their greed in silence. They hold their peace. They can't admit that they had fallen for the trap of the instability and the vanity of earthly greatness. And now, Jesus in love exposes them. They forgot their Proverbs, right? Proverbs chapter 27, verse 2. Let someone else praise you and not your own mouth. But I suppose the central thing here was in their rivalry with each other, right? Now, rivalry on a team can be healthy. I want you to think of an example of teams and teammates just push each other to the peak of their ability and the whole team excels as they each excel. That's healthy. What is not healthy is what, and what is destructive is when rivalry becomes the occasion for selfishness and jealousy. And thus you see this argument. And you see this all the time in team sports where one or two or three, they just have to stand out above the rest and they just have to let everybody know who they are. But it's a team sport. So the rivalry just collapses the team just so that one or two or three can say, I'm better than you. And you need to know that. And of course, that can happen in a family, it can happen in a business, it can happen in a relationship, it can happen in an office, it can happen in a church, but it happened to these disciples. What a horrible walk that must have been. And I hope we're not saying, well, if I had been there, I would have been better. The honest thing to do is to see ourselves here and run to Christ. Because human pride, while being hard to detect, prevents repentance, it ruins relationships, And it reveals itself in all kinds of ways and even in the most rarefied places like a church or church leadership. Pride is anti-gospel. And this is why. Pride is anti-gospel because we wrongly assume we are the source of our achievements, of our greatness, if you would, and not God's grace. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, it is through pride the devil became the devil. It is a complete anti-God state of mind because we assume that all we've had and all we've done is because of us, that we got this better, if you would, than everybody else. And the medicine to pride is humility, a humility which David Wells writes, a freedom from ourselves, 
a freedom which enables us to be in a position in which we neither have recognition nor importance, neither power nor validity, and even experience deprivation and yet have joy and delight. And that is a freedom. That is a freedom of knowing that we are not at the center of the universe, not even at the center of our own private universe. What was the problem of the disciples? Why wouldn't they answer Jesus? Because they placed themselves at the center of their little universe, blinding themselves almost purposely to all which was to come, and Jesus caught them out. They were giving voice to their daydreams, right? Remember what the Puritans would tell us? Tell me a person's daydreams, and I'll tell you what matters most to that person. It's true. The disciples were giving voice to their daydream. I am megas. That's the Greek word for great or greatest. I am mega man. I'm mega man. And so they were certain Jesus was going to set up a cabinet when he got to Jerusalem, and they were fighting for the seats of power. You know, you hear these kind of worldly maxims. If you're going to be great, you just got to go out there and you're really going to show them. You're not going to take any stuff from anybody. No, you go get it. You're mega man. You're mega woman. There is nothing new under the sun. In mainstream life at the time of Jesus and mainstream life here, there is a preoccupation with status and position and rights. Right? Hey, everybody, look at me. Listen to me. Respect me. It can't be me that's wrong. Can't you feel my greatness? Can't you see my greatness? You don't. Well, let's have an argument. Let's have a good old argument, and I'll tell you why I'm the greatest. In the middle of the 20th century, philosopher G.K. Chesterton, listen to what he said. I find it helpful. Modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, the divine word. So the disciples are behaving like the Pharisees. They love power, they love fame, they love notoriety, they love position, they love money, if you would. All that came with it. They're not doubting themselves at all. But they're almost doubting Jesus' words. They're willing to argue their way to the top. And when his question comes, they can't answer. They can't answer. Final point. A lesson they needed to learn. And can we just appreciate the dignity of Jesus? I mean, come on. You, you'd want, get out of here, guys. Who do you think you are? I mean, you would expect that on a human level. But what does he do? He knows their greedy hearts. Verse 35, he sits down. Why does he sit down? That is the proper posture of a rabbinic teacher. Guys, it's lesson time. Obviously, the first lesson didn't stick. But I love you so much, we're going to go through this again. And he begins to teach them about true Greatness. He wants them to know. He wants them to get it right. And what we need to see here, and this is incredible, in just one sentence, in just one sentence, Jesus turns all human ideas of greatness completely upside down. Verse 35, if anyone wants to be first, yeah, yeah, he must be the very last and the servant of all. And by the way, all that word is anthro, root word, anthropos, all humanity. Okay, guys, you've been talking about your status, you've been talking about your greatness, and you want to know who's first on the list? 
Well, just let me tell you, it's those who serve all people, not people who get served. That is a hard lesson to learn, and only God's grace can set them free and set us free to learn from it. Think of it this way. When you watch those commercials of people on holiday and they're poolside and they're at their table and here comes the little Tahiti drinks, right? They're so beautiful, little umbrella and the pineapple. And you see all that, you're not thinking, man, I wish I was the person serving those drinks. That would be so great. If I was the person serving those drinks, awesome. What are we thinking? Right? Only the grace of God can set us free from ourselves. The disciples will keep fumbling and bumbling through this. They won't get this right till after Pentecost when the Spirit has to come and give them new power. But still, the truth is the truth. Jesus is saying in verse 35, greatness is not in our position, our possessions, our achievement, or our rank. Rather, greatness is in sacrifice, it is in service, it is in selflessness, and self-abnegation, humility. In that society, in ours, we know that the one who serves or waits on others is regarded as lowly, inferior. But Jesus says in God's new order, he's turning everything around. The one who serves first, greatest. So we may tend to think that greatness equals success, but a completely different set of criteria is given to us here by the word of God, and we have to bring our minds under its authority. True greatness, listen carefully, is not your name and lights and a house by the beach. It is to be last in order to be the servant of all. It is to set yourself aside to be servant of all, which means you're going to have to let some things go. You're going to have to let some things go, which means our time, our energy, our wealth, our ability is placed at the feet of Jesus Christ. And Jesus takes that and he places it in the hands of others. So whatever gift we have, we've been given. And Jesus says, take that gift and serve. And of course, that's extremely challenging because here and there we're taught... uh, We can be great in God's eyes, and no one may never hear of your name at all. So true greatness refuses to feed the ego and say, what about me? What about me? It refuses to ask the question of time and of culture. Am I happy? Am I fulfilled? What about me? Instead, true greatness says, how can I serve? How can I help? How can I make people realize they matter? No matter how insignificant they may seem to society, how can I help people see Jesus in my service to them? And the Christian will never be able to do this hard in unless our identity is not in our status, but it's in Christ. Now think through that. Unless our identity is, Lord Jesus Christ, you've died for me. I belong to you. I am incredibly valuable. But so are others. So please help me to have, have my status and my security in you alone. That's where my identity must be. And Lord Jesus, when you do that, that will help me lay aside all my prejudices. Because I have them. Right? Because sometimes I don't like to serve certain kind of people. It might be easier to serve lowly people, but I do not like to serve people smarter than me or wealthier than me. In fact, I don't like to serve people who failed me. So you're going to have to help me. And that's a huge move. 
It's a huge move, and you can't do that unless you get on your knees and say, God, don't let me feed my ego. Help me to serve others. Help me to set myself aside for your glory. That's verse 37, right? In Christ's name. In Christ's name. Why do you think Jesus said that? Because our hearts are so devilish that we can play the local church like local theater. And the only reason we serve is like the Pharisees. We thirst for applause. Or I don't want to have, I don't want to let anyone have any ammo against me. I don't want anyone ever thinking that I don't serve, so I'm going to serve so they won't say bad things about me. Or we thirst for power. If I go out there and get it, people are going to see me and they're going to see me and they're going to go, wow, maybe he or she has some ability. Let's put them up there. They're kind of great. So there's a question emerging. I hope you see this. Are you serving in Christ's name? Are you serving in Christ's name? Are you a servant of the church and a servant of the world? And to drive that point home, look at verse 36. Jesus uses a lovely visual aid. He takes this little child. Maybe it's Peter's child. Who knows? Puts him in his arms. Center of attention. And Jesus says this. When I tell you, you must be servant of all, you start here with this child. A child who in that society was right at the bottom of the pecking order. Right? Start here with this child who many feel at that time is the least powerful, the least influential, and the most easily disposed. In that society. In fact, if you want to read some horrible things, read how children were treated at the time of Jesus Christ. It's awful. So you start there. So Jesus says, you're not to strut around in my name, feeding your ego, serving only the top tier. We know how that is. No, you get down on your knees and serve those who the world despises. Start there. That would be great. Immediately, a, a story comes to mind. I think I've told you this a long time ago. Maybe you've forgotten. But there's a group of pastors. We're getting ready to have open-air um, uh, revival, I guess you'd call it. And they went into the bathroom to pray, which is kind of weird, but that was the only place they had privacy. So they're all in there praying, and they're praying, oh, Jesus, help us. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Okay. And then they get done, wash their face and hands, maybe clean up their face, look in the mirror, and they go. All of them go except one. And the one guy is behind. And guess what he's doing? He's picking up all the mess and cleaning up all the mess that the pastors created by not putting the paper towels in the garbage can because the garbage can was overfilled, so they just threw it down and let it fall on the floor. And one guy's there. Finally, they notice. He's not there. Two go back. What are you doing? And they saw him picking up the garbage and picking up the trash and wiping up the counter. And he said essentially this. Guys, if we can't do it right in here, we'll never do it right out there. Never. So Jesus continues. Listen carefully. Verse 37. As you welcome and serve this helpless, statusless child, you're not only welcoming me, you're welcoming my, welcoming my father who sent me. Is that what he says? Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Now, this is awfully important that we understand this. If we are not serving in the way Jesus has been teaching, then it's much more than just not serving. It is not serving and not welcoming God. Now, again, please. If we are not serving in the way that Jesus has been teaching, then it's much more than not serving. It's not serving and not welcoming God. You're actually turning your back on God in your refusal to serve the way that Jesus has described. 
I mean, it's no wonder. If you look ahead in verse 38, you see it there? One of the disciples basically starts throwing people under the bus to get the attention off of them. It's like, this guy was doing stuff in your name. He shouldn't do that. And that's what children do. And as you think about this, aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't abandon them here? It's like, guys, it's done. I'm going to get a new group or I'm just going to go by myself. No, Jesus does not treat them the way that they deserve. You see, so to see our faces in this is, is right. And we see our sin. Because the fact is, is that we do this now. And we'll do it in the future. So it would be wrong to try to wiggle out of this and say, okay, we don't have pride, we don't strut, we don't thirst for applause, I don't like high positions, or I don't like keeping my name uh, free from slander. No. But God is a merciful and forgiving God. He keeps the lessons coming. You'll read this again as we move along in Mark. He keeps the lessons coming because even as his grace will keep covering their sin. Isn't that what the Bible says? God doesn't treat us as we deserve. He won't treat the disciples the way that they deserve. Daniel said in 9, God, you are righteous. This was his prayer. You are a merciful, forgiving God, even though we've rebelled against you, even though our faces are covered with shame. So here's the story of the Christian life. In God's love for us, Christ exposes our hearts Not so that we can defend ourselves or say, you know what, I'll do better, or say, they're far worse. But he exposes our hearts to help us understand the need of his gospel, his gospel of grace, and just to cast ourselves at his feet, asking for mercy. Because the entry point for the discipleship is God's grace. You see, loved ones, our sin is being exposed here. To show us that we're not great apart from Christ. To show us we have nothing to offer except our sin. And until we've tasted that truth, listen carefully. Until we've tasted the truth, the grace of God in Christ keeps covering over our sin. We will never be able to serve others in the way that Jesus Christ has said. Never. Because we can't offer to others grace and service what we ourselves have never experienced, right? If we haven't experienced grace, then most of our service will be impotent, just kind of like the disciples unable to help the boy. So I hope we've experienced the grace of God in Jesus. Man as man, we have rivals, we have pride, we like high places, we hate low seats, we thirst for notoriety, we thirst for power, We want control over our life, and we still, even after all that, try to make ourselves acceptable to God. When the story of the Bible is, we cannot make ourselves acceptable to God. But God in Christ has come down, and he has taken our pride in his body, and he's taken our rivalries and our rebellion and our refusal to serve others. He just put it on his body at the cross. And what does he do? He credits to us his absolute perfection. He credits to us his righteousness. And he does it not because we deserve it, but he does it because of his grace. So, loved ones, only the grace of God can make a true disciple a true disciple. And when we stand before God, it will only be by his grace. 
And if we actually know that and heart in believe that, then I promise you, it's going to become a lot easier to serve humanity, to start at the bottom, no matter their position or standing in this world. And Jesus says, that would be great. That would be great. A wonderful Savior is Jesus our Lord. A wonderful Savior to me. He hideth my life, thank God, in the cleft of the rock where rivers of mercy I see. I could never keep my hold. He must hold me fast. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Psalmist says, He does not treat us as our sins deserve, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Because God has brought forward that final day in the person of His Son, so that those who are in Christ will know only His approval now, and we will live in the wonderful assurance of God's total commitment to us, and to see right to the very end that good work which he began in our lives. The first day, his grace came down. Think this out. Don't hide. Step into the light. Let the sun shine on you. Let him clean you up and point you to the way. Verse 35, sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all humanity. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we give glory to your name for your perfect, unwavering love. We say this often, but we say it again this morning. Everything right about us, you did. So please, Jesus, help us in the ins and outs of our life to see the world as you see it so that we might serve the world as you served it, even if it would cost us. Now, may the God of hope give you hope at all times and in every way. May the God of peace give you his peace at all times and in every way. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. For Jesus' sake, we would pray these things, Father. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.